Church, I want you to look at this slide. Been singing it. I think sometimes we can we can get in a habit of things. Last last Wednesday we talked about vain religion, right? And sometimes that can creep in, and it can creep in here. And I think sometimes we can sing songs that maybe we don't mean. So I want you to look at this as we explore what we're going to explore tonight in God's Word. I want you to let this question be on your mind. Is Christ enough for me? Is He everything that I need? I want you to think about it. I want you to be truthful with yourself tonight. Because sometimes things are easy to say. But when you examine our lives, our lives say something completely different. So I want you to think about this. Is Christ enough for you? Is He? We're going to open up in prayer and we're going to pick up where we left off in Ecclesiastes last time. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to start looking at uh, verse 8. I want us to think about this question. If Christ is enough for us. Another way that you could say it is, where does your treasure lie? In whom or in what? Let's open up in prayer. Lord, as I stand here this evening, first I just want to ask that You would forgive me. Lord, I'm not worthy. But maybe... Maybe because I'm not worthy. Maybe because I really know that I'm not worthy. And I don't just say that I'm not worthy so that people would think that I'm holy because I don't care what what they think about me. Lord, I, I pray that even though I'm not worthy, that the truth of Your Word will be spoken and that it will stand. Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would move among us, move in our hearts, move in our lives. Lord, if You do not move, Lord, we will not be moved. So I will pray that You move. Lord, that You speak and that our hearts would be opened to listen to You. Lord, make Yourself known to us. Make Yourself known to us. It's in Christ's name and for Christ's glory. Amen.
We're going to be in Ecclesiastes again. For anyone who wasn't here last time, I want to kind of just give you a summary of that. Talk is cheap. When it comes to religion, when it comes to the way that you do things for God, talk is cheap. It would be better for you to fear God. That's what we see in Ecclesiastes 5-7, where we left off last time. And we're going to pick up in Ecclesiastes 5 and 8. And we're going to, we're going to look this evening, we're going to go from 5-8 down through the end of chapter 5. And we're going to look at we're going to look at four truths in this text, and then we're going to go over into the New Testament, because, man, I don't know if it's just me, this book is a very hard book for me as I go through it. I, I'm, I find myself constantly reflecting on the cross. I think this is one of those books that, that pushes us there, because it, it really exposes us. So, as I preach this, what I want to, what I hope to do, uh, just along the way through the entire book, I hope I've been doing it up until this point, but, uh, it's my prayer that I continue to do this is as we look at these difficult texts that we find in Ecclesiastes, that we would reflect on how the New Testament makes things clearer for us and how we find our answers uh, to these difficult questions, these difficult issues in Christ. So we're going to be looking today in Ecclesiastes 5, and we're also going to wrap up by exploring First uh, Timothy, the latter part of chapter 6. So those are going to be the two uh, spots that we're going to kind of spend a little bit of time in this evening. So like I said, I'm going to try to point out to you four truths that can be seen in this. Uh, the first truth that we're going to explore in the first two verses, 8 and 9, is going to be that the strong will oppress the weak under the sun. Right? So the first truth is that under the sun, the strong will oppress the weak. You can hear poor here. The rich will oppress the poor. Right? And we're going to look at this as we, as we read verse 8, chapter 5, Ecclesiastes. Don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful, and if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up, and matters of justice get lost in red tape and bureaucracy. Even the king milks the land for his own profit. We've spoken in a, in a, in a past, uh, a past study in Ecclesiastes over in chapter 3, we looked at the injustices of life in 3 and 16 where it says, and I also noticed that under the sun there's evil in the courtroom. Yes, even the courts of law are corrupt. Right? So we've, we've looked at injustices already. And when we were over there, I just want to kind of remind you because the same question is going to come up here again. And the question that I asked when we were over in chapter 3 looking at injustice is I asked the question, if all there is is what's found under the sun, then how can we, how can we find injustice? Right? For any of you who were here, or maybe for those of you who weren't here, I kind of explored this in this way. If all that we have is what's found under the sun, then we live in a world in which naturalism is true. 
Right? If you don't know what naturalism is, that would be a worldview that says that there's no supernatural, there is no God, there is nothing but what is. Right? Matter and energy set in motion in some way yet unexplained that is wound up here. So that really the, the proper analogy that you could set up would be to say, it would be just as correct for a rock falling and crushing another rock to cry out for injustice as it would for a person being wronged by another person to cry out, hey, that's unjust. Right? Where's the justice? Okay? But clearly if we see a rock falling on another rock, we don't cry out. We don't see any injustices that are being done. Right? Yeah, we do. And this is a, this is a truth that's clear. When humans, when we see wrong, whether we know how or not, we know wrong. Right? We can identify, whether it's skewed because we're sinful and that we sometimes call things that are right wrong and some things that are wrong right, we still have this idea of right and wrong. But the question that I have is, where does that come from? And he, he addresses this as he opens this verse up when, when he starts out with, don't be surprised. What is, what is he assuming when he starts off saying, don't be surprised? That when you see the poor being oppressed by the powerful, that it will come as a surprise to you. Right? That you'll be the person that says, that's, a, that's not just. What's going on there? He tells us here, don't be surprised. And the truth is, if all there was was what was found under the sun, we should not be surprised. This is what we've come to know as survival of the fittest. Right? Now all of a sudden, we've become the fittest and we've turned on ourselves and now we want to look for justice? At, at what point does justice arise when all we are is matter and energy in motion? This is a question that as I look through this, I can find no answer if all that I can answer with is what's found under the sun. And this is the context in which we're in for anybody that's new to this, that this may be your first time. The context for all that we're looking at in Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes, is found in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says this. It says, Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work? Where? Under the sun. Under the sun. So, here's one thing, one truth that we're going to see. Is that under the sun... Time and time again, we will be surprised. But, the teacher says, don't be surprised if you see a poor person being oppressed by the powerful. And if, injust if justice is being miscarried throughout the land. For every official is under orders from higher up and matters of justice get lost in red tape. And bureaucracy. 
What is it? He, he ends. This is the king, okay? This is the king saying this. The king says, even the king milks the land for his own profit. The king says this. And again, and we've covered this before, he is the fittest of them all. Why is it, why is it causing him heartache? Why is he fessing up at this point? If all that's found in this world is what can be found under the sun, I don't think that we would be able to come up with an answer for this. Verse 10. We're going to start exploring a second truth here. And these build off of each other. Okay? I want you to follow this. So, what we're doing at first, we're starting high level. The strong oppress the weak. The rich oppress the poor. And now we're exploring the motivations behind that. That's what we're going to see here in the next couple of verses. So a truth that we see is that the strong will oppress the weak. And here's why. Verse 10, Those who love money will never have enough. I'm, I'm going to read that a couple of times. Okay? If you have your Bible... Or if you just want to read off the wall. I want you to listen, not just with your ears, but I want to listen, I want you to listen with your hearts. Because there's some of you who, who do not think that this is true. There's some of you that have a number in your head that you think if you get there, you will have enough. The truth is, if you ever get there, you will find out that you don't. And you will continue chasing on and chasing after something that will not satisfy. Because it can never be enough. Is Christ enough for you? Is Christ enough for you? Those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth will bring true happiness. This is what we think. This is what you've been fooled into thinking, whether it's because you've been raised up in a wealthy household, or whether or not it's because you, you live in a world in which you have, if you have change in your pocket, you're better off than the large majority of the rest of the people around the world. Right? I want you to understand this. There's some of you in here who think that you're poor. And by my standard, you may be. And by Bill Gates' standard, you definitely are. But by the world's standard in which you live in, you are very, very fortunate. And the reason that you don't know this is the same reason that we find here. Those who love money will never have enough. This is why the rich keep trying to get richer. Right? This is why the middle class want to go to the upper class and why the lower middle class wants to go to the upper middle class because it's just a stepping stone to the upper class. Because money and those who love it, they'll find they never have enough of it. So how meaningless. I want, don't, don't let the end of your life be when you find this statement to be true. Don't let it take that long. 
I want us to again to think about who's telling us this, right? I think we need to be reminded that this guy had more than us. This was the king who had more power than the king. This was Solomon of the kings who was more wealthy than this king. So this is, this is not a book written by a peasant. Right? Do we understand this? This is, a, this is a book written by a man who lived his life with more money than any of us in this room, having chased lifetimes after money, would ever hope to combine together and pull together and have. So understand when we read these statements, this is coming from someone who should know. Right? How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. Verse 11, the more you have, the more people come to help you spend it. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? So here, and in the New Testament, we're we're actually going to flip over there. And we're going to see that uh, Paul in 1 Timothy, we're not going there yet, I just want to kind of give you a heads up, uh, because each of these four truths that we're looking at, we're going to explore again, so we're digging in, and then we're going to be coming back out. So we're going to, we're going to dig in, and then we're going to reverse the process out and look, because that's essentially what goes on in the text that we're going to be looking at in the New Testament, is, is he works backwards out of, out of the way that we're kind of working inwards here. So, I want us to understand that, that that money will be said will be the root of all kinds of evil. Another thing that we can see, another truth, that the love of money, it's fleeting. Right? It's fleeting. You'll never have enough, and even when you, what you do manage to get, you'll have it and you'll watch it slip through your fingers. Let's continue to read on. Keeping in mind the entire time that this is the king, this is a wealthy man who is saying this, people who work hard sleep well, whether they eat little or much, but the rich seldom get a good night's sleep. So I want to I go ahead and stop first of all, and I want us to understand that there's a truth in this, that it's not sinful and it's not evil to work hard. Right? It is not sinful and it is not evil to work hard. Right? Let's continue on. I want, I want you to, I want you to keep that in mind. Right? I want you to keep that in mind that it is, I'm not saying here that you working hard is evil. And he is not saying here that you working hard is evil. Under this is a motivation. Right? Under this is a love of money. Right? A love of money that will never satisfy you, that will never be enough. There's no amount of hard work that will get you there. Right? Though working hard is not sinful, if working hard is directed towards sinful means, vanity of vanities. Something that could be good is wasted on something that's fleeting. Verse 13, 
There's another serious problem I've seen under the sun. Hoarding riches harms the saver. So the love of money ends in what? It harms you because what? I mean, if you're going to try to get more and more and more, you're going to need to keep a little bit of it, right? So you think, if I'm going to get to that next level, if I'm going to get to that next step, then I better save a little bit of this for myself. Right? So we start hoarding it for ourselves. In the New Testament, I, I believe it's Christ who, who gives an example of a man who's, who's been blessed. And, and what does he say? He's, I'm going to tear down my barn and I'm going to build a bigger barn. And then God says, you're foolish. Because you're going to die tonight. Let's be careful. And, and one thing that we should get in this, hoarding harms us. Right? Hoarding harms you. You think that it will help you succeed. Right? You think that your hoarding of what God has given you is going to cause you to get to that next level of happiness. And this is simply not true. Hoarding riches harms the saver. Verse 14, money put into risky investments, money is put into risky investments that turn sour and everything is lost. In the end, there is nothing left to pass on to one's children. Now we're going to start taking a look at the next. So, so that last part of that verse, bridging into verse 15 here, is going to lead us into the next truth. And I'm going to go ahead and lay this truth out there for you. And know it is as evident as day. It is as evident as the hand in front of your face. You're, you're going to run the risk in each and every one of your lives in living like that you don't know this to be true. Verse 15. I wonder. I wonder as I read this. And sometimes I reflect on myself and my own actions. And I wonder, do I believe this? We all come to the end of our lives as naked and empty-handed as the day we were born. We can't take our riches with us then why is it that we live like we could? Those who amen. Why is it that we live like we could take it with us? That's what we do. Many of us probably have more than we need. And yet probably each of us knows someone in need. And your fear of what's going to happen when you're 65 and don't want to work anymore is going to keep that person hungry. Is it not the truth? Is it not the truth? How many people as a church could we feed? I wonder. I wonder. If we weren't so worried about tomorrow. 
Think about it, church. Think about it. We're in a building here. How much did this thing cost? Like the insurance policy is over a million, right? When we get this thing paid off, this little congregation, over a ten-year period, a million dollars. And we're poor, right? We're in poverty. What could we, what could we do? If we were more worried about the people who were hungry, then how we're going to refinish this carpet, or how, what's it going to take to pull up the tile so that we can get prettier tile when we get this place paid off? What about it? Because here's the truth. When you stand before God, He's not going to ask you how many times this floor was cleaned by you. He's not going to ask how much tithe money you gave to a church so that they could keep the power bill going. He's not. I was naked and you clothed me, church. I was hungry and you fed me. Church, whether we as individuals die rich or we die poor, we all die. Every dead person is the same. And if all that we had was what was found under the sun, every dead person would end up dirt. So what's the, what's the money going to do for you in a hundred years? Huh? What's this building going to do for us, church, in a hundred years? What? M- most of you will be dead. I say most because some of you may live that long. You're going to have a whole lot of work to do with the leaks in the roof then. Because <laughs> I got a feeling it's going to spread. <laughs> Vanity of vanities, church. Vanity of vanities. Verse 16. And this too is a very serious problem. People leave this world no better off than when they came. All of their hard work is for nothing. Like working for the wind. Throughout their lives, they live under a cloud. Frustrated, discouraged, and angry. This is what happens when our hearts are set on things that cannot satisfy us. Right? That things that in and of themselves cannot be enough for us. Do you know what happens? We devour them. Whether it's our possessions, and we set them above God, or whether it's our family, and we set them above God. They cannot bear the weight that He can bear. They cannot bear it. So what happens... It'll never be enough. 
And this will leave you, and it will leave the person chasing after these things as though they're living under a cloud, frustrated, discouraged, and angry. How many of us fall in that category? Then when we look at our lives, we find ourselves frustrated, discouraged, and angry. Because it's not working out like we planned. That five-year plan that I set up five years ago didn't turn out quite like it would. Man, retirement's looking a little further off now than when I was younger and thought I was going to be retiring at 65. Right? How many of you are there? How many of you are looking at retirement? And boy, when you were 30, you thought, man, I'm going to live it up when I get 65. And now you get to 65 or get close to 65 and you think, man, I wonder how I'm going to make that money stretch until I'm in the dirt. That's what you... Really? Really? You get to a point where it's just like, I just got to make this last until I don't. Right? Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities if our lives are lived like that. Meaningless. It's meaningless to live like that. Now the last point. And I want to I make a note. Now, I've split this into two parts. So you're getting part one tonight. And we're going to pick up, really, and review this, this that we're going to be looking at now the next time. So next Wednesday, we're going to look at this in a little more detail. But I want to, I want to point out another truth to you. And it's going to sound good until next week when we explore it deeper. And if you wanted to go ahead and do it, you could read on into chapter 6. So the next truth is, even so, I've noticed one thing at least. That is good. It's good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun during the short life God has given them and to accept their lot in life. So truth, enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and kind of side note this here and I'm gonna tell you that it's gonna be very hard for you to enjoy your life if you're living under a cloud of frustration, discouragement, and anger. Right? It's gonna be hard for you to enjoy your life if you're living there. And we're gonna go on in the next, next week and we're gonna explore a little bit more, uh, what it means when we look at enjoying this life. Uh, and accepting our lot in this life. Verse 19, and it is good. So here's, here's something that I want to, I want to go ahead, and he does this. So don't be surprised at the top, at the first couple of passages of text. Don't be surprised if the, you know, if the, the strong are oppressing the poor, or the strong are oppressing the weak. We explore here a little bit of loving money, and you can't take it with you. But, on a side note, verse 19, it is a good thing to receive wealth from God, and the good health to enjoy it. Now that part's going to be the part we really look at next week. Because what we're going to find is that health is fleeting and it's oftentimes hard to even enjoy the wealth sometimes that God gives us. And I think that's for a purpose. I think that all that He's leaving us with here on this earth, when we use it and we try to abuse it, and it's not for the glory of God, we find out that it's meaningless, pointless, and void. Sometimes we learn the truths of Ecclesiastes because we don't read the book and we live it. Right? We live it. And then you're 85 years old and you realize these truths. And there's some of you that are not 85 years old in here yet. You got time to read the book 
before you waste your lives. So read the book. So it's good to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life. This is indeed a gift. Now, one thing that I want us to note, and we're gonna, we'll spend some more time next week on this, is that this gift is not guaranteed for the entirety of your life. And it's a gift, so it's not even guaranteed for you at all. Right? It's not a promise that you're gonna be wealthy and healthy. If you are, it's a gift. And we're gonna explore that a little bit more in the next passage of text. So, uh, verse 20 there, just to wrap up. God keeps such people so busy enjoying life that they take no time to brood over the past. So here I want us to look at what we, the, the kind of the high points that we've looked at here. The strong oppress the weak under the sun. There is a love of money that is fleeting and it will ultimately end in harming ourselves. At the end of the day, you cannot take it with you. So we're left with just enjoying life. Just enjoy what you have. I want us to flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is a book Paul is writing to Timothy here. They're very close. If you read the letters that Paul writes to Timothy, uh, like over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he addresses Timothy, he says, Timothy, my dear son. So he, he's not literally his son, but he looks at him as though he's his, his son. So there's a, there's a strong relationship that's been forged together in service between these men. And Paul is here writing to Timothy in chapter 6. We're going to be start looking at verse 6. So we're going to be reversing out of this that we've looked at already. So the, the last place that we ended was enjoying life. The New Testament kind of modification of this that we're going to find is to be godly and be content. And this is in verse 6 of chapter 6. And he says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. So I want to tell you, if you want to be enjoying life, be content with your life. And again, we've already said that doesn't mean you can't work hard. What's driving your hard work is the question that we need to be exploring. What's driving your hard work? So yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. Be content. Chase after godliness, church. Verse 7, he's reflecting on what truth that we've seen over in Ecclesiastes. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Verse 8, so. And here's, 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 here's a point I want us to spend a little bit of time looking at. So, so what does it mean to be content? So, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. He wasn't a rich man. He wasn't a rich man. Read it. Look at the life. Look at the life he lives. Look at the words that he's saying to the people that he's left behind. Man, if we look around us at the church today and the state of the church in America, 
To say that you're called to preach is almost like saying, I'm a charlatan. It is. It is. Turn on any television that's got any man preaching God's Word, and he's not telling you this truth. He's not telling you that if you've got enough food and clothing to be content. Pay that seed, church. That's what they'll tell you. You want to be happy in life? Pay that seed so that God can make it grow a hundred times. And you know what they're, you know what they're doing? They're playing off of your love of money. You're not giving to God, you're giving, you're paying it forward to yourselves. If you're giving, looking for what's going to land in your bank accounts. This is not what he's preaching. This is not the gospel that he's laid for. And this is not what he's telling Timothy to go on preaching here. He's not telling Timothy, Timothy, you need to preach more on tithing. You need to preach more on tithing so those people will give money to you so that you can go and sit back fat and happy. This is not what he's telling to Timothy. These books are not made up because you do not make this type of stuff up. It's foolishness. It's absolute foolishness. Absolute foolishness. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Verse 8. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Verse 11, But you, Timothy, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things. And what is he, what is he commending him to run towards? Let's read on. Pursue righteousness and a godly life, along with faith, love, and perseverance, and gentleness. Verse 12, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering, then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach Him. No human eye has ever seen Him, nor ever will at all. All honor and power and glory forever. Amen. I want you to tell me, from what we read there, what truth would correspond to the you can't take it with me idea.
What truth in the text that we've looked at there? I want you to think about this. Church, I want you to I want you to read the text. I'll read it again for you. So you can't take it with you. You can't take anything worldly that you gain in this life with you. And that's alright. And for each of us, we should say, well, that's alright with me too. Because what lies before us is greater than what lies behind us, church. For just at the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of kings and the Lord of all lords. That's verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 6. What lies before us, church, is greater than any wealth that we would leave behind here today. I want you to know that. I think we need to we need to trust in that. We need to be confident in that. Okay? Because this should be what motivates us and drives us is that we know that no matter what we lay down in this life, no matter what treasures we willingly give up in this life for God's glory, we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven that are far, far superior to those. And this is why He can say this to the rich. This is why He can say this to the rich. And this is what He's teaching Timothy to teach to them. Verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives all, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So how are we going to find enjoyment in this life? The truth is there. If you're not reading it, read it. Trust in God. Let your hope rest in Him and not in your money. This is what He tells them. Verse 18. Tell them to use their money to do good. Not to hoard. Right? Church, I, and I think, I think it, maybe it's Shane who said it. I know he said it to me that, that, that we're not a bank. Right? This is not the first national bank of Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Right? You ought not be hoarding our money together. Right here, we should be using our money to do good. And I want us to. I want to ask you as an individual, and I want us to. I want to ask us as a church: What are we using our money for? Hmm. When we get there, we're going to stand before him, and and we're going to be on the other side of the coin, and he's going to say, "I was I was naked, and you never clothed me." Is that what we is that what we look for as a church? Is that what we want? I was I was I was hungry and you never fed me. Is that is that what we want? If that's what you want, then let's hoard that money together. Right? Let's build a bigger building. Let's get nicer floors. And I'm I'm telling you, when you stand before God, there's not none of that gonna matter. I'll sing a little bit. 
This is what he tells them. He goes on. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share with others. Do you see any, do you see any needs around you? Is anybody in need? So none of, I, I'm asking this seriously. Are we, are we none in need? Like, this is not a trick question. I, I know sometimes I set y'all up for trick questions. Like, do you, is there anybody that, that's, that is worried that they're not going to be able to pay their house payment? Or they're, we're all in need of something. But I'm talking about, is there anybody that's in need? You're not going to eat tomorrow? If somebody doesn't give you something today. Like, is there anybody in that kind of need? Because if you are, come find me after church. I'll give you some money. You will not go hungry. Do you need clothing? Well, get with me after church. If, we, if I'm going to have an altar call, come up here. We'll get your stuff paid. It's foolish that we walk around with plenty when others have nothing. It's foolish as a church and as individuals. So, I've seen no hands raised. So there's nobody in need. Do you think the people that live by you are in need? Do you think that there's anybody in Cordova that is in need? Do you? Then what would be the response that we should give to that? What can I do? What can we do? Does anybody care what we can do? You don't have to go knock on a door. I'm not asking you to go across the street and knock on doors and talk to somebody. That's not what I'm asking you to do. Church people will die today and they don't have food and clothing. I know I'm all winded. I preach long enough so that when I get done, when I step down, I know that there's likely someone who has died hungry or cold. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Church, he says they should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always, man, not when it's convenient, church. Always being ready to share with others. Do you see how this is contrary to what we see under the sun? Under the sun, the strong oppress. Under the sun of righteousness, 
that King of kings and Lord of lords, under Christ, the one that we claim that we know, the strong uplift the weak. I don't know. What can one man do? What can one man say? Maybe we go on. Let's build up storehouses. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, if if you do not move, Lord, we will we will sit here. We'll sit here in fear. We'll sit here in doubt. Lord, if you do not move, Lord, children will die today. Move in us. Move in us, Lord. I thank You for Christ. I thank You for the cross. I pray that You would make Yourself known to us. Lord, we claim to know You. So often we find ourselves living our lives in denial of You. Lord, You have poured out Your blessings on us as a nation, as a people, as individuals. And we have esteemed the gift higher than the giver. Lord, I ask that You would forgive me where I do it. Lord, forgive us as a church. Lord, I pray that You would move hearts. We would not be a people who talk of the things that we are going to do, but that we would be a people who do. Or that we would not build up storehouses and call them churches. Lord, you have more in store for us. It's in Christ's name.